Uh, as I mentioned, I was away this week at the, uh, the New England huddle. And uh, having not seen each other for two years, of course, one of the topics that came up on a regular basis at the dinner table and in conversations was, you know, the issue of COVID, how has COVID affected your fellowship and that kind of thing. And uh, it was a common denominator across everyone that it's been a divisive issue. Many people have lost a lot of the, fe- the people in their fellowships. You know, some, a few fellowships have grown, which is wonderful, but a great majority of them have had, uh, these pastors have had to deal with you know, the struggles of the differences of opinion in their churches to illustrate that. One man who is a very close friend of mine uh, told me that in the space of one week, and this was just within the past uh, month or so, uh, and, and, and let, me, let me preface this with this man just teaches the word of God. He does not talk about politics from the pulpit. He, you know, he doesn't do any of that stuff. And I've heard him teach many times. In the, in the space of one week, he had a family come to him like on Tuesday and said, you know, we're leaving the church and we just wanted you to know why. And that's because this church is too much like Trump. Two days later on Thursday, he had another family come and say to him, we're leaving this church and the reason why we just want you to know is because this church is too much like Biden. I'm serious. this, This really happened. And he looked at me and he said, I never even talk about those guys. You know, I just teach the Bible. So it's just interesting the world that we are living in, isn't it? That, that you don't have to say anything. People are just, their, their antenna are on. They're filtering everything through the grid of their political views and their views on, you know, all the issues of, you know, what's happening in our government and, and the world and whatnot. But the issue, as we're going to be reminded this morning, is none of those things. It's the gospel of Jesus Christ. So if you would turn in your Bibles, we're going to read in chapter 22, verses 1 through 22 together, although we're going to look at the whole chapter. And it begins this way, And Jesus answered and spoke to them again by parables and said, The kingdom of heaven is like a certain king who arranged a marriage for his son and sent out his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding. And they were not willing to come. Again, he sent out other servants saying, tell those who are invited, see, I have prepared my dinner, my oxen and fatted cattle are killed and all things are ready, come to the wedding. But they made light of it and went their ways, one to his own farm, another to his business. And the rest seized his servants, treated them spitefully and killed them. But when the king heard about it, he was furious, and he sent out his armies, destroyed those murderers, and burned up their city. Then he said to his servants, the wedding is ready, but those who were invited were not worthy. Therefore, go into the highways, and as many as you find, invite to the wedding. So those servants went out into the highways and gathered together all whom they found, both bad and good. And the wedding hall was filled with guests, but when the king came in to see the guests, he saw a man there who did not have on a wedding garment. So he went, excuse me, he said to him, friend, now how did you come in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. Then the king said to the servants, 
bind him hand and foot, take him away, and cast him into outer darkness. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth, for many are called, but few are chosen. Then the Pharisees went and plotted how they might entangle him in his talk, and they sent to him their disciples with the Herodians, saying, Teacher, we know that you are true and teach the way of God in truth, nor do you care about anyone, for you do not regard the person of men. Tell us, therefore, what do you think? Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? But Jesus perceived their wickedness and said, Why do you test me, you hypocrites? Show me the tax money. So they brought him a denarius, and he said to them, Whose image and inscription is this? And they said to him, Caesar's. And he said to them, Render therefore to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And when they had heard these words, they marveled and left him and went their way. Lord, we thank you for the reading of your word, and as always, we ask for your blessing on the scriptures as they have been read. May the the words of your word find fertile soil in our hearts, and may these things grow and bear fruit 30, 60, and 100-fold in our lives. Lord, would you bless our time, bless our attention and our attentiveness to the things of the Spirit. Bless our offerings, bless our singing, bless our fellowship, we pray. Bless this church and make us truly, Lord, a lighthouse to the world and the community around us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. As we had been talking about last week and going through the back end of chapter 21, we had looked at uh, some other parables, uh, the parable of the two sons, the parable of the wicked vine dressers, And we had looked at how these parables speak somewhat of both the father and the son and the nation of Israel's rejection of the son. Remember that we are in Passover week. So we, uh, as of today, this this passage that we're reading in Matthew 22, we are actually on Tuesday of Passover week. Remember Jesus rode into Jerusalem on uh, that Sunday, two days prior, and that was the triumphal entry. And then Jesus went back on Monday, and he went into the city, and he spent time there in the temple area, and he spoke with the scribes and the Pharisees and the people. And now he is back on Tuesday, uh, teaching parables, continuing to minister. And this parable has a very unique um, slant to it, as both this parable and one of the previous parables are based on Isaiah chapter 5, which was the parable of the vineyard, and I would encourage you to go back there to Isaiah chapter 5, verses 1 through 7, and read the background for this as the Lord talks about the nation of Israel, referring to them as a vineyard, referring to them as his people. Another thing that we have to understand is that in the sense of the Passover, because they, they are all there for the Passover, that during Passover week, as people came and they brought their sacrifices to the Lord, so many of them traveled from far away. And when they got to the city, they came with their, uh, their sacrifices and their offerings, and they had to be examined. And of course, as Pastor Mitch told us a couple of weeks ago, uh, looking at when Jesus cleansed the temple. He did so because 
as people came traveling from afar with their sacrifices, they came to bring their offering to God. But it was a corrupt business. And they had taken over the outer court of the temple area, which was called the court of the Gentiles, and it was meant to be a place where the nations could come to God. They could come and worship at the temple. You didn't have to to be a Jew to come and worship God. Anyone could come and worship God. And God had always said in the Old Testament that he wanted the Gentiles to come and to be at his footstool. But of course, they had taken over the temple and they had converted the area to a place of merchandise. They'd essentially made it a shopping mall. And so as the people came and they brought their offerings, the, the corruption was there uh, with the, the people who were inspecting the offerings, and they immediately said, everything was rejected, basically. Hey, your animal on the way stumbled. It got a blemish. It's not a perfect offering. It's not a perfect sacrifice. But hey, if you go over here to the approved temple vendors, you can get one of your your animals that has been approved and it's been stamped and certified. But of course, just like going through the airport security on the outside, a bottle of water is a dollar. On the other side, a bottle of water is $4. So it is at the the temple uh, marketplace. Uh, Maybe your lamb was worth 50 cents, but on the uh, there in the temple court marketplace, they might be charging five or or $10. It was a, a complete usury. And so a part of this process here, Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, remember that the Jews reckoned the day from 6 p.m. to 6 p.m. or basically sundown to sundown. So, So don't forget that. That's important as we are building up to the day of the Passover because Wednesday at 6 p.m. at sundown, it became Thursday. Thursday was the Passover. And so Jesus is now there presenting himself when he rode into the temple, when he rode into Jerusalem, he was presenting himself as the Messiah, as the Lamb of God. And these interactions that Jesus is having during this time is Jesus presenting himself as the Passover Lamb. They don't fully realize it. But you see, the Passover lamb had to be examined to find out if it was truly pure and clean and spotless. And Jesus is being examined by the scribes and the Pharisees through these parables. And today they turn up the heat a little bit here in what we have is chapter 22. So we come to the parable of the wedding feast and we read these first few verses here as Jesus tells this parable. And Jesus answered again in verse one and spoke to them, again by parables and said, the kingdom of heaven is like a certain king who arranged a marriage for his son. It was a common thing, of course, for people to have arranged marriages in that day and that time, certainly for a king. Now keep in mind all of these parables as we explain the other two, they have symbolism involved and certainly the king here is who? It's the Lord God Almighty. He arranged a marriage for his son. Who would his son be? Jesus, okay. So he arranged a marriage for his son. Remember that all throughout the scriptures and all the way going into the book of Acts, and even Paul wrote this over and over in his writings. You find it in chapter one and two of Romans where Paul said to the Jew first and also to the Greek, God's chosen people were the Jews. He came first to the Jews. Jesus presented presented himself to the chosen people as the Messiah, as the Passover lamb. 
So the kingdom of heaven is like a certain king who arranged a marriage for his son and sent out his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding, but they were not willing to come. So first and foremost, as we go through this parable, you have to understand the primary application is to the nation of Israel, is to the Jewish people, and it's for this time, for such a time as this, as Jesus has ridden into Jerusalem. And it says here, and they were not willing to come. They were resisting the Lord, and if you will, they were resisting the Holy Spirit. Again, verse 4, he sent out other servants saying, tell those who are invited, see, I've prepared my dinner. He had invited them and they weren't coming, so now he gets urgent. He sends them, you know, servants. He sends them a message, and if we were to put this in our modern day vernacular, this could have been a phone call, it could have been a text message, it could have been someone knocking on the door saying, hey, did you forget about the the wedding feast and the wedding come? Now is the time. Come to the wedding. Tell those who are invited, see, I've prepared my dinner, my oxen and my fatted cattle are killed and all things are ready, come to the wedding. Hey, everything's getting cold. Remember, in these days, there was no refrigeration. When you prepared a meal, when you had a feast, it had to be served then. It had to be eaten right then. So there was an immediacy to being invited to this wedding. But it tells us in verse 5, tragically, they made light of it and went their ways, one to his own farm, another to his business. In other words, the king was invited these, had invited these people to come to this wedding banquet, to this feast. And they looked at it and they said, you know what? Yeah, I'm just too busy, man. I can't make it today. I'm sorry. Just got too much to do. In fact, really, I have other priorities. This really isn't that important to me. I'm, not, I'm kind of bored with these things. I don't really, I don't really want to go. And the rest seized his servants. So there was a group of people who just said, not interested, talk to the hand, calendar's full. And then there were others who were wicked and they seized his servants, treated them spitefully and killed them. This has a familiar ring to the previous parables, right? Where he sent servants and Jesus obviously there was referring to the prophets who had come. The parable of the vineyard, you know, the vine dresser, the vine owner. And remember that in that parable, Uh, as he sent his different servants, the prophets, uh, they mistreated them, they beat them, they harmed them severely, they killed them. But then the, the vine dresser or the vine owner said, I'll send my son, perhaps they will respect him. And in that previous parable, as soon as the son came, they reasoned among themselves and said, aha, if we kill the son, we'll get the inheritance because he has no one left. We've already killed all of his servants. We've already, we've now killed his son. This will be ours. And so they were wicked. But here we find in a very similar way that they treated them spitefully and killed them. But when the king heard about it, he was furious. And he sent out his armies, destroyed those murderers and burned up their city. Now, many believe that this is a prophetic statement buried in this parable about what would happen in a few years later in AD 70 when the Lord would allow uh, the, the Romans to come in, Titus Vespasian to come in and tear down the city. Remember the prophecies where Jesus said, 
I tell you that what, not one stone will be left standing upon another. And certainly that was true. That happened. It's a historical fact. And then he said to his servants in verse 8, then he said to the servants, the wedding is ready, but those who were invited were not worthy, meaning they rejected the invitation. Therefore, go into the highways, and as many as you find, invite to the wedding. So at this point, it would seem, by the parable, that the Jewish people had, they had rejected, or they were rejecting God's invitation. They were rejecting Jesus. They were rejecting the Messiah. And so he's saying here, go out and invite anybody you can find. So those servants went out into the highways and gathered together all whom they found, both bad and good. And this is rubbing salt in the wound for the Jews because remember these religious Jews, they looked at the law, they they looked at tithing mint and cumin and dill and they counted, you know, one for you, two for me kind of a thing. And they were so religious and so focused on the law and so focused on their traditions that they missed the fact that Jesus, their Messiah, came, that he was standing right in front of them. He had been there for three years, bearing the image of God. He said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. He was God incarnate before them. And so now he says, you've rejected me, so the gospel will go out. And as we see in the book of Acts, we don't have to look very far down the path to understand that in those early days of the church, the gospel went first to the Jews. And then we find in Acts chapter 1 to Jerusalem, then Judea, then Samaria, then the uttermost parts. And by the time we get to Acts 8, the gospel's gone to Samaria. By the time we get to, to chapter 10, it's going out to the Gentiles. So this parable has very real tentacles in that it goes out in the very near history and it has fulfillment But the invitation, go into the highways and as many as you find, invite to the wedding. So again, while this parable has primary application to the Jewish people, to the nation of Israel, it also, I think you can see, has implication to us as believers in Christ. And when he sent those servants out to gather together all whom they found, both good and bad, it says, and the wedding hall was filled with guests. People began to come. And I think we can take here a very simple principle from this, that the gospel is for everybody, isn't it? See, there is nobody that we should not preach the gospel to. And the scriptures tell us this in so many places. We could could do a short Bible study here and all the places that tell us how and where to go to share the gospel. But we find here in verse 11 an interesting thing. When the king came in to see the guests, he saw a man there who did not have on a wedding garment. And you see, often in these situations when a king or a noble or a dignitary would, would invite people to a wedding feast, because this was such a high-class event, the king would provide the garments. A little bit different, you know, in our world, right? Imagine you're invited to a wedding, but they're told, look, the tuxes are on us. Go here, get fitted up, and come and, and, and wear the tux that the king has provided. In other words, you're not given the option to wear whatever you want. I'm sorry, Americans, with your freedom. You can't do that. You have to put on the garment that the king has given. 
And I think it's a short hop here to the understanding that we need to be robed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ to enter the wedding feast, don't we? We can't just walk in with our own good works or however we want. We come as we are, we come with our sin, but as we come to the Lord Jesus Christ and we believe on him and we receive his free gift of salvation, we are changed. We do not come before the throne of God or have any basis to come before him on our own with our own works, clothed in our own righteousness because we are told in the book of Isaiah, are we not, that our own righteousness is as filthy rags before God. And so we come clothed in the righteousness that the king provides. And what is that? It's the righteous blood of Jesus Christ. The king came in to see the guests. He saw a man there who did not have on a wedding garment. So he said to him, friend, how did you come in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. Now who was speechless? The king who saw a guy without the wedding garment or the guy who didn't have the wedding garment being speechless at the question of the king and it's probably both. Now does this mean somebody can slip into heaven who's not supposed to be there? I, I don't think so. This is a parable. Okay, don't, don't take it too far. But the obvious thing is, you can't come in without the garment that the king has provided. And the king said to the servants, bind him hand and foot, take him away and cast him into outer darkness. Not just into darkness, outer darkness. There is an emphasis here. A place where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. This speaks to us of the horrendous nature of hell. And we need to understand that. Hell is a real place. It's not some figment of the imagination. It's not some theoretical opposite of utopia. It's hell. It's a place reserved for judgment. It's spoken of in Revelation chapter 20 as the, the, the great white throne judgment. And at that judgment, all of those who have never believed and are trusted in Jesus Christ all of those who have never been robed in the righteousness of God will appear before that throne. And they will be passed by and into the place where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. Later, when Stephen, in Acts chapter 7, had been anointed by the Lord, remember in Acts chapter Six, the, uh, the first servants had been raised up and their people had been raised up because the, uh, the Hellenistic Jews were complaining that they were being neglected in the distribution of the offerings. Uh, Stephen was one of those men who was listed there, who was full of the Holy Spirit and full of faith. And later, the Lord has empowered him to minister. And in Acts chapter 7, Right before Stephen is stoned, he's giving this incredible spirit-filled message to the rulers who were mad at him. In fact, they were foaming at the mouth mad at him because he was preaching at them saying, you crucified the son of glory. And there in Acts chapter 7, 51, Stephen said, you do always resist the Holy Spirit. And so the nation of Israel committed that first act of treason, which was the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. And in verse 22 of Matthew, excuse me, verse 14 of Matthew 22, he ends this parable by saying, for many are called, but few are chosen. 
The gospel is for everyone. It's to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Greek means Gentile. Many, a large number, can also be translated all. Few are chosen, as indicated by their response. You see, we indicate if we are a part of God's elect by our response to the truth of the gospel. People want to get hung up on, you know, predestination and election and all of that. Predestination and election is a real thing, but so is freedom of choice. You know, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever should believe on him should not perish but have everlasting life. And how do we prove if we're a part of the elect of God? By receiving and believing and by repenting. And he said there in the parable that they were not worthy. That is those who rejected the invitation. They were not worthy because they didn't have faith. They didn't have the faith to believe in the goodness of God. In Ephesians chapter 2, I'd like to read this to you, verse 4. But God, who is rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And raised us up together and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Do you, do you get the picture? That in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace and his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And that, not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Romans chapter 10. But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith which we preach. That if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. For the scripture says, whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. For whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. How then shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how, they sh- how shall they believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how <clears throat> shall they hear without a preacher? Faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. You see, just as in this parable, where the king sent out his servants after people had rejected, you see, people will reject the gospel, won't they? They will reject God's offer, his free gift of salvation, but he continued to send out those servants. You see, there's the working of the spirit, but there's also the sending of the servants of the messen- or the messengers. So listen, we are never to become tired or grow weary in ministering the good news of the gospel of Christ to people. If we get the hand in the face 10 times a day, 15 times a day, 50 times a day, that's okay. We continue, we persevere, we continue to let people know, yes, Jesus loves you. God's love is expressed through his son. The cross is a picture of the love, the grace, and the mercy of the Lord Jesus Christ. God is forbearing. God is merciful. It's revealed to us in his son. And we continue to do it, not because we have notches in our belt or 
notches on the stick or marks on the wall of how many people have come to Christ because of our ministry. We just do it. We just sow the seed. Remember Matthew 13. Sowing the seed. The seed is the word of God. And we just keep sowing the seed and we just keep doing it and we leave the results to God. Because the Holy Spirit is the one who cultivates and tills and brings that seed to fruition in a person's life. Our job is to sow his God. His job is to cultivate. Verse 15, then the Pharisees went, remember they're examining the Lamb of God, and they plotted how they might entangle him in his talk, seeking to trip him up. And they sent to him their disciples with the Herodians, saying, Teacher, we know that you are true, and teach the way of God in truth, nor do you care about anyone, meaning he doesn't regard their opinions as one being greater than another, uh, for you do not regard the person of men. Tell us, therefore, what do you think? Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? See, there is a group of people here, the Herodians. So there's the scribes, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and then the Herodians. The Herodians were religious people who became political activists. Now tell me if this doesn't ring true today. The Herodians believed in Rome, thought it was a good idea to pay taxes to Rome, and wanted Rome there because Rome was providing shelter, Rome was providing comfort, Rome was providing for the people. Do I, do I have to connect the dots here for you? And so they came and they were testing Jesus, saying, teacher, we know that you're true, and they're buttering him up and using flattery. And Jesus perceived their wickedness, verse 18, and he said, why do you test me, you hypocrites? Show me the tax money. So they brought him a denarius, and he held it up, and he showed the coin to them. He said, whose image and inscription is on this coin? And they said, Caesar. So he said, okay, here's your answer. Now, here's the issue. If Jesus said, yes, pay taxes, they would have said, well, he's like the Herodians. And so basically, Jesus is a Democrat. Or if he took the opposite opinion and said, no, you shouldn't pay taxes, you should resist, you should fight, he would have been a, a revolting Republican there on January 6th at the Capitol. I'm serious. This is the kind of thing, the test that they were putting Jesus to. And he said, Render therefore to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. In other words, we live in a world, we live under government, we don't like it. Certainly, do you think the first century Jewish people loved being under the oppression of the Roman government? I don't think so. I mean, there's so much that they couldn't do. Every time they turned around, they had to pay a tax. There was a, a tribute tax you had to pay. There was an annual tax just for being a citizen that they had to pay. Every time they went through toll gates, they had to pay taxes. I mean, they were taxed every which way. If you've watched any of The Chosen, you pick up on some of this. There was a heavy tax burden on the people that didn't exist prior to Rome's infiltration into uh, Judea. Jesus is not in favor of taxes, but he says, look, the world is under the sway of the wicked ones. Satan is here. Satan is, is pushing government. In fact, Titus addressed this, or rather Paul addressed this in his letter to Titus, Ch Titus chapter 3, verse 1. Listen to this. 
Remind them to be subject to rulers and authorities, to obey, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to be peaceable, gentle, showing all humility to all men. In other words, this is a way that we witness by being this way. But you see, this is the word of God. For we ourselves were once also foolish, disobedient, deceived, serving various lusts and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. But when the kindness and the love of God our Savior toward man appeared, not by the works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us through the washing of regeneration and the renewing of the Holy Spirit, through whom he poured out on us abundantly through Jesus Christ our Savior, that having been justified by his grace, we should become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. That's what's important. This is a faithful saying, and these things I want you to affirm constantly, that those who have believed in God should be careful to maintain good works. These are good and profitable to men. Listen, but avoid foolish disputes, genealogies, contentions, and strivings about the law, for they are unprofitable and useless. Jesus, as he held up that coin, says, whose image and inscription are on this coin? And then he answered and said, then render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. But as if he held up us, if he held up me and you, and if, what would he say? Whose image and inscription is on you? Whose mark is on you? You see, he's given us his word. He's given us his spirit. Simon Peter, a bondservant, an apostle of Jesus Christ, writing to those who have obtained like precious faith with us by the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ. Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of, our Jesus, of, our, of Jesus our Lord, excuse me, as his divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness, through the knowledge of him who called us by glory and virtue, by which we have been given exceedingly great and precious promises that through these you may be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. Whose mark and image is on you? Is it Caesar or is it God? Are we not told all the way back in Genesis chapter 1 when God created man that we are his image bearers? Have we forgotten that? But when they had heard these words, verse 22, they marveled and left him and went their way. They didn't know what to say to Jesus. So then... The Herodians failed, the Sadducees come, verse 23, they're examining the Lamb of God, and the same day the Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection, came to him, and they asked him, you see, the Sadducees come up to bat, strike one for the other people. The Sadducees entered the field and tried their attack. Keep in mind that this group of people accepted only the authority of the first five books of the Bible, the five books of Moses. The Sadducees did not believe in a spirit world, so they didn't believe that there was a spiritual aspect to life. And they did not believe in the doctrine of the resurrection. In fact, the constant debate 
between the Sadducees and the scribes and Pharisees was proved to us using only the first five books of, of the Bible, the five books of Moses, that there's a resurrection. And if you can do that, we'll believe you. And that was the common intellectual university debate that went on among them, and it was never resolved. So these guys come up to bat saying, verse 24, teacher, Moses said that if a man dies, having no children, his brother shall marry his wife and raise up offspring for his brother. Now there were with us uh, seven brothers and the first died and after he had married, having no offspring, he left his wife to his brother and likewise the second, then the third, all the way down to the seventh. Then the woman died. So they bring their argument to Jesus and they say, therefore, in the resurrection, whose wife of the seven will she be? For they all had her as wife. Now, they're arguing about the the chief passage, which is Deuteronomy chapter 25, verses 5 through 10. And this is being referred to as the Leviret argument, which comes from a word which means a husband's brother. And the purpose of this custom given in the scriptures in Deuteronomy 25 by Moses was to preserve a man's name should he die without a male heir. In Israel, it was all about preserving the lineage through the name which was perpetrated by the man or by a son. And so this was a a big issue. This was a big intellectual construct that the Sadducees had created and they based their disbelief of the resurrection on the fact that no woman could have seven husbands in the future life. And like many people today, they conceived of the future life as an extension of the present life. So they had this argument and they brought it to Jesus and they said, Jesus, so what do you say? The scribes and the Pharisees, they can't, they can't answer this. No one's ever been able to you know, give us an answer that we thought was even decent. What about you? You're, you're the teacher. Can you answer us? And here was Jesus' answer to them in verse 29. Jesus answered and said to them, you are mistaken not knowing the scriptures nor the power of God. Wow. Now the scribes and the Pharisees knew the scriptures. Jesus has said to them over and over, have you not read? And he'll continue to say that to them because they don't understand. And he's saying here to these guys who knew they had the first five books of the Bible the, the ones that Moses wrote, memorized. And Jesus says, you're mistaken. You don't know the scriptures nor the power of God. You see, they thought they knew the scriptures better than anyone. And they probably did. They could probably quote it to them. Have you ever had that experience? Someone comes up to you, you get into a discussion or a debate with them, and they're just quoting scriptures. But as you're listening to it, you know there's no spirit behind this. It's just dry It's just dead information to you. And it blows my mind, it perplexes me how someone who knows the word of God so well and who can quote it is not born again, how they're not saved, how the spirit of God is not within them, but it is true, it happens. And then he says, you're mistaken not knowing the scriptures nor the power of God. You see, if you truly know God, the scriptures are life to you. If you truly know God, you know the power of God. And he says here, for in the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like 
angels in heaven. In other words, they're not angels, but they're similar to angels, meaning in heaven there's no procreation going on and people aren't married in heaven. I'm sorry, for some of you that's good news, I'm sure. For others, that's a disappointment. But concerning the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was spoken to you by God saying, and he quotes to them from the five books of Moses, and he says in verse 32, I am the God of Abraham. Not was, not I was the God of Abraham, but I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. God is not the God of the dead, but of the living. In other words, you people who don't believe in the spirit world, you you don't believe the word of God, you think you know the word of God, but you somehow miss the fact that God is the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, and those words he quoted came after their death. I am the God of the living, not the God of the dead. And the multitudes, when they heard this, they were astonished at his teaching. And all of these things became for us types and images and foreshadowings that point to Jesus Christ. You see, he's, he's, he didn't die and go in a grave and his body decayed. He was raised again by the power of God. He is not the God of the dead, but the God of the living. Verse 34, but when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together. They're like, all right, somebody finally shut those guys up. Then one of them, a lawyer, came and they said, okay, well, you know, Pharisees up to bat, number three, number three in the rotation. They asked him a question, testing him, saying, teacher, what's the great commandment? Now, this is their issue, right? Which is the great commandment in the law? You're an expert on Moses, apparently. But let's see how you fare with this one. This is a split finger fastball. Can you handle this, Jesus? You see, they had 613 documented commandments in the law. 248 were positive, 365 were negative. No person could ever hope to know and to fully obey all of those commandments, could they? So to make it easier, the experts divided the commandments into, quote, heavy or important and light or unimportant. Sounds a little bit like how the Catholic Church had divided sins into categories, right? You have your mortal sins over here and your venial sins over here. Venial sins are, you know, they're sins, but the mortal sins are the ones you really need to be concerned about. Same idea here with the 613 commandments and how they had been divided and broken down into heavy and to light. The fallacy behind this is James tells us that whoever shall keep the whole law and yet offend in one point is guilty of all. See, this is why we needed the Savior. Because it was impossible for us to keep the law of God. If you want to know more about that, read the first five verses of, excuse me, five chapters of Romans. Jesus said to him, verse 37, okay, here's my swing. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul and with all your mind. In Mark chapter 12, Mark's account, 
really Peter's account, he says, you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your mind, and with all of your strength. This is the first and the great commandment. And the second is like it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You see, Jesus quotes to them out of Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4, and he quotes to them what's commonly referred to as the Shema. A statement of faith that was recited daily by every Orthodox Jew. And it's a confession of faith that begins with the words, Hear, O Israel, hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. And so this was their daily ritual. And so they knew these things. And Jesus says the greatest commandment, if you guys want to divide it into the important and the unimportant, I'm going to go way beyond that. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, all your strength. This is the first commandment. And if you get that right, then loving your neighbor as yourself, we see that just comes, that just follows along. I'm going to be a little crazy this morning. The world will not be won by our radical conservative rightness or our liberal loony leftness. The world will only be won by the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart, all of your soul, all of your mind, all of your strength. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. Everything right there. Now, if you're struggling this morning with what it means to walk with God, Jesus couldn't have made it any easier. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. What does that mean? Think about that. Meditate on that. When you get up in the morning and and you, you, you're trying to figure out what am I going to do today and what's my calendar and where's my coffee machine and all of that and where's my toast. Lord, it says to love you with all of my heart, soul, mind, and strength. I didn't even know how to do that. Show me how to do that. That's step one. This is, this is being a Christian 101 right here. And you see, if we love the Lord our God, the vertical with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, if we love God completely, if we love God in totality, if we love God more than anyone or anything, yes, love God more than anyone, more than your husband, more than your wife. This is what I tell people in premarital counseling. It's wonderful that you're coming together. It's wonderful that God's brought you together, but you were saved before you came together. You you were called to Jesus before you came together. You were called to love him first and foremost before you came together. After you come together, you get to do that together, but you can never love your husband or your wife or your kids or your dog or whomever more then you love Jesus. That would be to get the cart before the horse. That would be to get things out of order. And so we have to consider what does it mean to love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, all your strength. You see, if we can do that, then learning to love our neighbor comes easier. In fact, if you want to learn a little more about what it means and how do I learn to love my neighbor, go read 1 John chapters 3 and 4. John talks about that in great detail there. 
Paul, in Philippians chapter 2, wrote something that I think comes close. It approximates what Jesus said here about loving the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and loving your neighbor as yourself. Let me read it to you. Philippians chapter 2, verse 1. Therefore, if there is any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and mercy fulfill my joy by being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind, let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself even people we don't agree with. Let each of you look out not only for his own interest, but also for the interest of others. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. We just read what his mind is here in Matthew's gospel. So as they come and the tests just keep coming, verse 41, while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them, so now he goes on the offensive and he says to them, you guys have been asking me questions, I got a question for you. Saying, what do you think about the Christ, the Messiah? Whose son is he? And they said to him, well, he's the son of David. And they see, this was common knowledge. They all knew from multiple scriptures of the Old Testament that The scriptures said that the Messiah would be the son of David. And so Jesus says, okay, I got one for you. How then does David, look look in your Bible there, in the spirit, call him Lord? Saying, the Lord said to my Lord. And if you could read the original language in verse 44, the Lord, the first one is Jehovah, said to my Lord, Adonai. How can Jehovah say to Adonai, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand. Wait a minute, isn't God one? The Shema says, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And this is where they were confused. How can the Messiah be the son of David? They were like, we are certain on this. We know the Messiah is the son of David. The Bible tells us this. But they never understood this passage and Jesus is about to rattle their cage. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. Here's this question, you ready? If David then calls him Lord, how is he his son? Okay, go ahead, what you got? And they're, they're, they don't know what to say. No one was able to answer him a word, not that, from, nor from that day on did anyone dare question him anymore. So on Tuesday, he's going to get, Wednesday is a free day from questions. No questions for Jesus on Wednesday. Freedom Wednesday. But what is Jesus saying here? And they, they had to be irritated to no end at this point. Jesus is saying to them, how does David in the Spirit... Call him Lord. How does Jehovah speak to Adonai? Who's Jehovah? Who's Adonai? I think Jesus is saying here, Jehovah is God. Adonai is me. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. In a few days, Jesus is going to ascend to heaven, isn't he? And he's going to sit at the right hand of his father until the time when the father says, go get him. And he sends the son 
to come and to receive his church. And the tribulation ensues. And then there's the second coming where Jesus comes back with the host of heaven and with the church, that that army on, on horses, the battle of Armageddon, which we will be a part of following our King and our commander and our Lord and our Savior into battle. And as Jesus says this here to them, they are perplexed. He clarifies for them an understanding of the scriptures that has been a puzzle for them for centuries, yet they don't receive it. And so their rejection of him is becoming more complete, but at the same time, their examination of the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, they cannot find any fault in him. They don't agree with him, but they can find no fault with him. And so Jesus is setting himself up for what, what's coming up in the next few days. Now, next week in chapter 23, please read ahead. We're going to look at this very unpleasant passage, which is called the, 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 the chapter of the woes. Woes to the scribes and the Pharisees. So Jesus unleashes, he goes on the offensive. He just says, okay, you guys, listen, you're hypocrites. And he just unleashes everything on them. Then in chapter 24, in 25, we have what's called the Olivet Discourse. And this is where Jesus on the Mount of Olives is teaching about everything in the future. What's, what's the kingdom age going to be like? When is his return? And what will the end of the age look like? And when, will, when these things begin to happen, what will these things be? And what will be the sign of your return and your coming? And then Jesus in 25 will talk about some parables. He'll talk about, again, the parable of the ten virgins. And he continues to teach and then he comes to that point of being arrested in the garden after the, the, the Lord's Supper is instituted, his last supper with his disciples. So everything that's going to happen in these next few chapters is going to happen basically over the course of one day. So there's a lot coming before us, so please read ahead and prepare yourselves. There's a lot here for us, isn't it? But if you have only one takeaway today from everything we've covered, love God, love people. Pretty simple, right? So hard to do. Lord, by the power of your spirit, would you do these things for us and in us? Would you help us to follow you, Lord? Would you fill us with what is not normal and natural, and that is love? and peace, and joy. And Lord, like our first century brothers and sisters, we don't like where we are in history. We don't like what's happening in our world and to our world. We don't like any of these things. We don't celebrate or rejoice any of them. They make us sad, and in some respects, Lord, they even make us angry. But Lord, what ought to make us angry, and this is where you need to do a work in me, is that I get passionate or help me to become passionate about the people who are passing through life and breathing their last, but they don't know who you are. They've never heard the gospel. They've never heard how much you love them, Lord. Let that become the thing that drives us and that becomes for us the thing that's the most important thing. May we, like Martha and Mary, more so like Mary, sit at your feet, Lord. Rather than being like Mary and busy and encumbered about many things, let us sit at the feet, Lord, of you and receive 
and believe and be strengthened and be transformed. Lord, we need the peace of God, and I pray that we have that through the blood of Christ this morning. And if anyone here has never believed, the gospel has been presented. What are you waiting for? Turn to Christ. You don't have to understand it. You will never understand everything about Jesus. We just come to him as we are, and we believe and we receive. Lord, we need the peace of God, but we also need peace with you, Lord. And if we have that peace with you, then give us that peace of God, which surpasses understanding. Lord, calm us. As David said in Psalm 139, search me and try me, O God, and see if there be any hurtful, any hurtful way in me. Search me and try my anxieties, Lord. We have so much anxiety because of the madness of the world. But the stage is being set. Things are being put in place, Lord, for you to return, for the Antichrist to rise. The nation of Israel is a nation again. Things are happening according to your, your divine clock. Lord, let us open our eyes and look up for our redemption draws nigh. Help us, Lord, to fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith, who for the joy set before him, Lord, may we have that joy. Fill us with your Holy Spirit this morning, God, in Jesus' name. Amen.